Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Abe Greenwald is off today with me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So we are still uh, in the midst of negotiations and public statements and contrasting public statements about the upcoming pending coronavirus relief package. Um, and we are also dealing with the conundrum that while everybody is um, sort of uh, continues to be in a state of panic about corona in the public health world, with talks about variants and the idea that we'll never get out of this and all of that, the the numbers, the nationally, the numbers of hospitalizations and deaths are now, you know, basically half what they were two weeks ago, and um, and yet we we simply cannot accept uh, good news. We can't. We 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 are uh, we have an incapacity to accept good news, and I think there's two reasons for this. One is that. The public health community is terrified that any uh, any promulgation of good news will cause people to stop doing what they what they need to do. So you never want to have a you never want to have a positive news cycle in that sense. Um, and because uh, the the world of people who might be willing to accept that there's good news, so we can get out of this, has long since kind of dissolved into skepticism about how serious it is and whether it's a pandemic and blah 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 and so you have this kind of these kind of poles of we all we all we always said that it wasn't as bad as you're saying when in fact it is as bad as they're saying and so they no nobody is in a position to accept that there is reason for optimism as these numbers are going down. Of course, uh, vaccination numbers are going up and those two dovetail into a very positive future because the vac- as the vaccination number goes up and we now have, I think, 33 million people have been vaccinated in the United States. That's more people than have been tested positive with the virus throughout the entire pandemic. And so this is exactly how it should go as the as the numbers go down and the vaccinations go up you can see herd immunity in the future particularly with these two new uh vaccines coming online Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca and apparently the Johnson and Johnson vaccine which is the one dose vaccine um one thing all of these vaccines have in common is that they prevent death from covid that and and there there is nothing more that you can expect it is the ideal vaccination situation it does not it does not cure it does not it it will prevent people from dying from covid and so uh that is as close you can get to a cure as you can get with a virus which of course goes and comes back and goes and mutates and does all that like the flu um okay so christine Go through with me the psychology of well, of the of the uh, of the pessimism of the. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of it is, as you said, wanting to keep a certain level of responsible fear. I guess is the phrase I would use. Um, but we've seen uh, people's trust in these messages erode over time, understandably, because there have been a lot of mixed messages. I was struck uh, today. I read uh, two different pieces that kind of captured this. The one was a kind of statistical breakdown of trans who are the transmitters of the virus who are the people who get it and transmit it to the most people and it's those of us between the ages of 20 and like 48 so right it's the 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 20 30 40 year olds who are spreading it all the kids actually aren't the spreaders and then the people who are dying from it obviously are the are the older folks so there was not a lot of analysis of this except to kind of drive home this message, especially with the new variants, that we should all be back in lockdown. Don't go to restaurants now. Do all the things that we were doing at the beginning of the pandemic. We should rethink again. Don't travel. So there was a one of these wellness columnists who, who writes about some public health issues in The New York Times. Tara Parker Pope had a whole detailed to-do list of all the things you should reconsider doing. Don't travel on airplanes. Don't go into restaurants. Don't gather with anyone who isn't a family member. All the stuff we've been hearing. 
But I think because of the vaccination numbers and the declining death rates, people are going to be more skeptical about that message. And she didn't really factor much of that into her analysis. The other thing I saw was a first person essay by a parent whose young child got COVID recently. And the thing that struck me about that was the the mother saying, you know, oh, this is the most vulnerable member of our family, you know, or my poor child. The child's first question to, I think it's, it was a boy, to his mother was, am I going to die? And the, the piece ends with her acknowledging in passing that she, that that child and their other child both were asymptomatic, like they were fine. But it was this, the, the fear around, her fear expressed in this essay about her child, which I have a lot of sympathy for. No one wants to see their child face, you know, a mysterious new illness. But it was so out of proportion to the actual risks that we now know that it struck me as having a, a broader purpose, which was to continue this message of fear uh, in the public rather than, than caution. I think we can move into a period of caution now because we have vaccines and we, we're seeing declines in death rates. But there are a lot of people, as, as Noah said frequently, there are a lot of people invested in keeping the fear going. And I, that has a counterproductive uh, effect now because the other studies I've been looking at are the greater skepticism about mask wearing, just as we're seeing people saying, wear two, wear three masks. So you're seeing these contrasts. And, and I think the the numbers and the science and the caution need to dominate, not the fear mongering and the panic that we're seeing from from some of our public health folks and from journalists. Well, there's science, and then there and then there are data, and the data say that um, you know we had a bad couple of months, and now uh, things are going in the right direction. And the data say that people are getting vaccinated more than a million a day. It should be faster than that, but better that than nothing. And that does not seem to affect the science uh, if the science is how you interpret the data, which is not really what science is, by the way. But I mean, uh, the science says wear four masks. The science says, you know, continue to socially distance forever. Um, and I, I don't mean to get on my 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 favorite sort of uh, left liberal hobby horse, but uh, let me go back to somebody we talked about last week, Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times on her podcast with Ross Douthat, the argument uh, out today, and Michelle Goldberg sounds like Noah Rothman from May of 2020. She's saying this can't go on any longer. I can't, and she's like. This is the worst I have ever felt. This is, I feel like a, a caged rat. And I, when I hear people say, when I get the vaccine, you can get the vaccine, but nothing is going to change. Uh, uh, that makes me uh, really, really angry. And this is very startling. This is the Biden change for people like her, right? Which is, Okay, now I can go out and see my friends because, you know, we don't have the existential threat of, of Donald Trump. And now you're saying to me, no, you got to stay inside because of the virus and I can't take it anymore. If she's saying I can't take it anymore, I take that as a real shift in the wind. And uh, it's going to make me angry that it takes, you know, so now it's fine for her to start going with the, we can't go on like this, uh, but not for, but it wasn't, you know, six months ago when in fact, if we had had much the same, granted she's using the vaccine as her, as her, you know, uh, as the point in time when everything should shift. But, uh, you know, given the, given the questions about the efficacy of lockdown and all of that, now, now it's okay for them to, you know, to say we can't, we can't do this any longer. Yeah, maybe, but I have every reason to believe that her co-partisans will beat the courage of her convictions out of her, um, and she will acquiesce to those demands. Um, they are now um, constituent services, uh, those constituencies like teachers unions, who who have every moving goalpost to make sure that they can never ever return to classrooms, even if they're vaccinated twice and their children, their, their pupils are vaccinated and they have you know, new age facts. There'll always be some new rationale that, um, you know, the distribution of vaccines in um, poorer and minority dominated neighborhoods is absolutely critical. And that line skipping, particularly for the white and wealthy is a problem. In, in other words, high demand 
for the vaccine is a problem that needs to be fixed. Um, these are the articles of faith um, that are predominant, predominant, mostly on the left, but um, that are driving public policy and have nothing to do with science and everything to do with a series of um, genuflections before the altars of social justice and progressivism. And that is what's eventually going to you know, dawn on her. Other, her, her alternative here is to wage war against the constituencies that make up the progressive base. She's not going to do that. Why not? She can't stand <laughs> it anymore. She's beholden more. She can't she's stand it. More. I'll tell you. You ask me a question. She's beholden more to her political ideology and her associations and the tribe that that makes up than her own psychological well-being. Or is she a harbinger of what they're about to do? Well, this is, is she a harbinger of what they're about to do? They're so about is, to say, look, we got rid of Trump. There's a vaccine. Let me out of here. Well, here's some here's some evidence for the for uh, more of that shifting uh, the, the argument, which is that we we saw yesterday that they're they're going to sue the San Francisco uh, school board if the school doesn't if the schools don't reopen in San Francisco. Loudoun County, Virginia, which has been a holdout for returning to in-person school, has grudgingly the teachers union has grudgingly agreed to come back the K through fifth grade students, I believe, are allowed to come back part time. So you're seeing some KB and in Chicago, the uh, uh, mayor Lightfoot is, is threatening the teachers union uh, with some action if they don't return to the classroom. So you're seeing some softening of those coalitions, even among, you know, very liberal uh, Democratic politicians who would otherwise ally themselves with these groups and, and need these groups votes, quite frankly, because the public demand is getting to the point where we're reaching a breaking point. I think there should be more lawsuits. And I'm, you know, I'm not someone who thinks litigation is the answer to everything, but there should be more lawsuits against these school boards and these school districts. If they don't educate, there should be more efforts as there have been on the part of some state legislators to sue or to, to withhold funding for schools unless they reopen some, in some sense, have some reopening of in-person learning. Um, these are all tools that we should be using right now because there's no other way to break these unions, these teachers unions. Um, and the Biden administration has shown itself to be completely uh, milk toast about even talking about doing <laughs> these things. I mean, they've been uh, extremely weak about uh, confronting the, the long-term effects of the lack of in-person learning for students. So uh, there are some hopeful signs. And, and I, I mean, I agree that Someone like Michelle Goldberg is will easily turn on a dime if she feels her tribal loyalties are going to be questioned. But I think you're right, John. I think they're wondering, you know, isn't isn't it our time now? I mean, we didn't get to celebrate Joe Biden being elected because we were all behaving responsibly and shaming those who didn't. And those were all terrible Trump voters anyway. So why can't we come out of our lockdown? I mean, look, there need to be crowds at the stadia, at the high school stadia, when the transgendered athletes run in defeat the cross, women's sports, run, run in the tra- in the track and field meets. Don't get and, me started on that. You no, know, I mean <laughs> no, but I mean I, I, that's 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 a that's a obviously a a satirical vision, but it's not that satirical a vision. They are uh, moving fast to try to take over, you know, the levers not of political and cultural power in the United States. And um, it's hard to do that and really kind of like take the measure of it from inside your apartment uh, in the 10, you know, in the 10 biggest cities in the country, which is where the Biden technocratic base is, uh, is, is located and where, and where, where it functions. So I think there, there is much more psychological incentive than, than Noah may be giving it credit for, for there to be a kind of wholesale shift here uh in the uh in the spirit and the messaging because it's no longer that you know you have an unserious guy in the white house saying drink bleach um and as a result you have to like not be him so you have to do everything differently and uh and and be his uh his his counterweight and we'll 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 know when that shift happens when the public health uh, bureaucracy determines that just like it was okay to riot uh, in June uh, because uh, racism is a public health issue, um, when Dr. Fauci and the minions of this world start kind of grudgingly saying, no, you can go back to one mask or maybe half a mask or, you know, yes, you can go and, you know, have barbecue. I mean, I don't know what. But yeah, Fauci I don't has- well, we have a we have a real world test of that. The CDC director yes. announced today 
that it is unnecessary to vaccinate teachers before they return to in-person education in classrooms. That is the gentle nudging from the oh-so-trepidatious world of public health towards these people who are holding children hostage. Um, And that's how they approach a hostage crisis. Guess what? The hostage taker isn't going to be moved by your oh-so-gentle nudging and guidance. They go to war. Or it continues forever. Well, and Fauci I don't foresee war. Yeah, and Fauci himself has said multiple times he thinks kids need to be back in classrooms and it's safe to be in doing with the right precautions. And Noah's right. What the what the war is about for the unions is they double down on on the what the precautions should look like and constantly shift the goalposts and they go to the mattresses every time and they know they will not be called to account for it. But I feel like now, perhaps parents and and just in general. That is shifting. Public opinion is shifting against them. We've seen early, you know, sort of survey and polling results, particularly in states like Virginia, where parents are angry and it has nothing to do with whether there's a DRNR after your name. I think you need to pull back from just the schooling question and talk about the just ordinary life question. Because remember, most people are not parents. I mean, most people may have been parents or grandparents or something like that, but you know, at, at any given moment, fewer than 50% of the country uh, has children in, in, in a household. Like, uh, I don't even know what the household numbers are. I think it's uh, it's like 40% or something like that have somebody under 18 in the household. So you're talking about a world in which uh, the schooling questions don't have a daily impact. Um, and uh, and it's it's terrible for everybody. I mean, you know, we're we're we are uh, particularly in the winter. I mean, I, I'll give you an example. So you you know you make doctor's appointments and you try to make them somewhere and they make them in in some kind of a practice or something and you're kind of lining them up together, right? So it's a doctor's appointment or something like that and you have one at ten and then you have one at 11.30, let's say, and it's 10.53 and appointment number one is over uh, and you have 36 minutes until appointment number two, what are you supposed to do? It's 20 degrees outside. It might be snowing. It might be this. It might be that. They don't really want you staying in the waiting room. You may not want to stay in the waiting room because it's a, it's a, medical facility go outside there's nowhere to go there's nothing to do well so this is is that's what i'm saying just ordinary simple ordinary life choices right but that um is we've been trying to tease out here for a, a while now but it's also probably contributing very much to miss goldberg's uh malaise uh and that is that life in american urban centers has become intolerable. It is not the case everywhere else in the country. In your doctor's visit example, for example, you get to wait in your car. That's how life works out here. In my 40, I'm 40 minutes outside the city. The malls are packed. Every restaurant is filled to the to its attenuated capacity. There are things to do, and people are doing them. It's just not the case in the urban centers on the coasts. Uh, and life has gotten really small during the pandemic. Everybody's neighborhood has become their universe. So it can feel as though this is the entire world. But outside of those major urban centers, life is not nearly as truncated as it is in the cities. Well, I, I'm not sure that that's right, because the malls are crowded based on the pandemic model, not based on the life of America. I can tell you that just my, my own personal experience, the place is uncomfortably packed. But it's uncomfortably packed because you live inside a coronavirus. No, uncomfortably packed, like generally. I don't like crowds. I don't know. I mean, no, before, but I mean, before the pandemic, walking in here and having people like brush up against your shoulder on the way out the door is a, is a discomforting experience that I didn't like pre-pandemic. Okay. Well, I don't know. I was in the Garden State Mall in New Jersey on Saturday, and the, everything was at 25% capacity, and it felt crowded. But even though it was – and believe me, the restaurants there are barely surviving with the limited capacity that they're – that they're, they themselves are showing. They're packed based on being full 25 or 50 percent. But well, there, there's another there's okay. another social part of this, though, that is not – that has nothing to do with commerce or going to the mall or, go, or eating at a restaurant. It has to do with whether people 
have the same comfort level and social experience with each other in each other's private homes, you know, with friends, people outside of your family circle, the socializing we all did with each other, you'd go over to someone's house for a cup of coffee, you'd have people over for dinner, those small acts of sociability are what keep us sane and bonded to our to our people. And uh, they're, for, if you're responsible about the virus, you haven't been doing that as much. If you know anyone who knows someone who's at high risk, you certainly haven't been doing that. And even if you do decide to, to have a little bubble where you that you socialize with, there's still that like concern of am I being responsible? Now, some people don't care about that at all. They just go about their lives. And, you know, these are the ones who, who sort of the elite love to shame as being, you know, grandma killers. But that act, the, those small acts of sociability on a day to day basis are hugely important um, to keep a society from fragmenting, to keep just people's individual mental health at a decent level. And that and, and that's true for adults. It's, it's especially true for teenagers. It's so important. It's not quantifiable in any economic model or measurement. And I think that's something that has ground down a lot of people and and the lack of that kind of contact, the loneliness that it causes and the kind of despair uh, in some people is is really, really a tragedy. It's it's one of the one of the things we'll never be able to quite quantify about this pandemic that's still experienced quite deeply by many people. And, you know, most importantly, I mean, you mentioned the op-ed about the six-year-old with coronavirus. I mean, how people under the age of 18 process, emotionally process the news Uh uh, and and live in a world in which uh, they are being told that there is a great contagion that is you know that is uh, running rampant and very threatening, uh, so threatening that uh, life has been disrupted in minor or major ways depending on where you live. Um, how do they work that through? Because you know the more uh, the more immature your understanding of the world is probably the more frightening that is probably your your capacity to understand that you know what we learned relatively early which is that it's a terrible thing for uh, very old people and apparently not a terrible thing at all for very young people i'm not sure they can make that kind of draw that kind of distinction and we're certainly not again i, I taking noah's uh, caution to heart like the extreme caution with which people have been living in the cities and stuff like that and in in these kind of uh, blue state uh, dystopias where you know where everybody is sort of like pan- you know panicked to the extreme about covid um maybe that's not what uh, is going on on elsewhere but uh, there's still it's still the dominant news story uh, the dominant story of our time and um and kids process these things in complicated ways that they can't uh, verbalize or they can't really follow you know it's uh and um and the notion that there might be widespread though minor but persistent trauma from this is something you should probably take for granted um the people recover people live through wars people live through you know all sorts of things and kids live through all sorts of things and one of the things we know about that is that uh, resiliency in the face of these hardships is kind of hardwired. Like it's a, it's a, almost a chemical thing. Uh, people who can sort of uh, make make their way through something and come out optimistic or whatever on the one hand, or whether it, or whether these things uh, intensify and um, and deepen uh, an innate anxiety, fear, whatever, that will, as a result, never really go away. But haven't you also been struck, though, and just in the kind of, again, sociable conversations, perhaps with someone you see in a waiting room or, you know, standing in line at the grocery, the kind of regular sociable conversations you used to have now can't happen without the sort of element of mistrust that everybody operates under because of the pandemic circumstances, by which I mean, you can't just say, oh, you know, have you traveled anywhere interesting lately? Or you can't bring up a trip because that introduces then this whole quest- number of questions. Will this person think I'm irresponsible? Do they think I'm a super spread? Like all of these doubts that the kind of mistrust, again, like on a daily basis that everybody kind of operates with just to get through the day and feel like they're being responsible and safe and whatnot it takes a toll. And I think not just on kids, on on adult relationships too. And I do wonder if a lot of the vitriol and the online, uh, the online replacement of a lot of our affections and passions 
is the result of the like, like the trust matters less online, right? You don't have the consequences yeah. aren't immediate and you can do a lot. And so while it's been a great benefit to be able to do a lot of our work and, and a lot of things online, there, there's a cost to that in terms of how we treat each other. I think I think it's it's inarguable. I mean, you may remember from last summer these anecdotes I told you about how um, I thought that masking was leading to a greater degree of of of, of person to person confrontation uh, than than uh, I had been used to, like practically since the crime wave of the early seventies, where people would yell at people on the street or you know accuse them of things or something like that there was something let loose by the fact that people were behind masks and therefore couldn't entirely be recognized or that the expression someone else's expression couldn't be read and so it was a rorschach test as to whether or not the person who ends up screaming at the other person, you know, uh, whether they read other people as naturally hostile or whether they see them as naturally kind of benign. And I think that was absolutely going on. And we know for a fact that that is the nature of, of, of online life. Put anything up nice on social media where you're in a social media that there, where there is anonymization, let's say like Twitter or something like that. And it's like, oh, my kid did this. It was so nice. And then someone says, you know, why are you t- saying anything about your kid online? What's the matter with you? Or, you know, something like that or what, you know, whatever. It's just the, the urge to insult, the urge to kind of get some kind of deep nihilistic ugliness out and just kind of spit at someone um, is uh, really, and, I think has accelerated to an astonishing degree and there are many causes of it, but I do think that this social isolation just creates an even greater uh, incentive, uh, psychological incentive to play that game. And uh, let's just step back for a minute. I want to talk to you guys about our new sponsor, uh, Moink. Because, look, uh, Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com slash commentary to get a year of ground beef for free and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month and cancel any time. Moink was founded by an eighth-generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it was the best bacon he's ever tasted. Uh, I don't eat bacon, but I'm sure he's right about that. And Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Moink. They guarantee you'll say... Oink, oink, I'm just so happy I got moinked. Join the moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now and listen. And listeners to this show can get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash Commentary, the highest quality meat you've ever tasted while supporting real family farms. Um, News just uh, came that the uh, Biden Justice Department is going to drop the Justice Department's participation in a lawsuit uh, aimed at Yale University's uh, uh, treatment of uh, Asian American applicants, uh, similar to the suit uh, that was launched at Harvard University, um, and that uh, a judge in a judge in Massachusetts said uh, uh, could not go forward, or, or because uh... anyway, what's interesting about this is that uh, uh, the allegation, the simple allegation is that these universities are discriminating against Asian Americans, right? That's it. Uh, in the Harvard case, uh, there is extraordinarily ample information to suggest that that was the case. The question goes to whether or not these as private institutions 
uh, have uh, extraordinary leeway in determining what is and what is not best for them in terms of their uh, how they make up a class and how they choose people for the class. Uh, the allegations in these cases are that um, being Asian literally costs you points on a point scale that they set up and that you need to do vastly better than other people, particularly other minorities, but but everybody. You have to do vastly better than everybody just to get to a level playing field. Uh, this, uh, to my mind, is one of the most um, outrageous and unseemly developments of the post-affirmative action age. Um, and I, I would be interested to know what incentive exactly the Biden administration had for deciding, announcing, making a big public announcement that it was ceasing its participation in this suit. I mean, this was this is coming as no surprise. <clears throat> it was in um, college-affiliated affil- newspapers and uh, the Harvard Crimson and, uh, and Yale and, and local outlets uh, have been quoting people in higher education expecting this, also expecting Obama-era race guidance in admissions to be reinstituted um, it should be noted that the Harvard case worked its way up through the courts, it was expected to be taken up by the Supreme Court. Um, the, the lower courts had found that it was within their discretion to use race as a measure uh, of, uh, by, of accepting um, students. It's The question really is the propriety of this sort of thing. Um, and the DOJ has been putting pressure on them. And the DOJ's, law, uh, DOJ's investigation into Yale, for example, is still ongoing, although you can pretty much assume where that's going to end up at this stage. Um, but the question is really about sort of a, a cultural antipathy towards Asian American students, which extends beyond private institutions and into public uh, institutions, public school districts. Christina has been writing about this. Uh, Abe wrote about this. Um, you have now uh, state schools, uh, public institutions, um, creating racial uh, uh, racial uh, hierarchies where they are lumping white and Asian students together as opposed to students of color that occurred in Washington State. New York City, the specialized high school system, is basically doing away, trying to do away with the standardized tests for admissions into specialized high schools, in part because it creates conditions that allow people like uh, people like Asian Americans who have a uh, a culture that promotes study and scholarship and uh, a work ethic and provides them with rewards for that sort of thing, which are perceived to be undue. Uh, And this is not like me delving into the subtext here and trying to find the penumbra of meaning. This is what people say outright in op-ed pages and, uh, and in, you know, meetings in school uh, or rather uh, uh, city council meetings specifically designed to create what the Biden administration has, uh, pledged its fealty to, which is equity. Equity is not equality. Equity is the is social leveling. And Asian Americans have risen to the top of particularly in schools and admissions um, for uh, based on criteria that involves merit. And their overperformance is being punished by social reformers who want to see equality of outcomes. And there's and there's another prong to this that that's actually it's a really important thing to understand that that to your question, John, about why would the Biden administration be embracing this? It's absolutely noise, right? It's absolutely one of the main uh, branches of their equity efforts, which which Biden vowed to see, you know, flower throughout the entire federal government. So the other part of that, though, is that so on the one hand, they're saying and places like Harvard argued that there were certain personality, so-called personality traits that they were measuring in their uh, applicants for admission. And that weirdly, Asian Americans all seem to get very low scores on these personality traits, but that that was fine because this was for the interest of diversity. And diversity is what we used to hear from the old affirmative action era. It's a, it's a benefit. There's no real measurement for how it's a benefit. We just assume it is and we're going to keep repeating it till everybody believes it. But the equity advancement has a much more um, 
uh, aggressive approach, which is they don't actually even pay lip service to diversity anymore because diversity isn't giving them the numbers they want to see and the racial uh, outcomes they want to see. So now we start to attack the standards themselves. So admissions tests are racist because we look to the the outcomes of the tests and not enough of the right people, the right color are doing well on them. So they are by definition racist. They don't prove it. They just assert it. Uh, lots of things like, you know, disciplines, uh, self-reliance, uh, working hard, all of these ways, logic, all of these things have through critical, the lens of critical race theory, been deemed whiteness, you know, oppressive. So it's not just that we're going to keep, you know, the really high achieving uh, kids of color who happen to be Asian out of these uh, schools. It's that we have to tear down these standards themselves at the same time so that there will be no, so then whatever outcome they want, they can then manufacture through decree. And that's where you see the outcomes-based uh, approach with these high schools, Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia, uh, Walls, a school without Walls High School here in DC, which one of my sons attends. All of these schools are using the pandemic as an excuse this year to get rid of admissions tests and embrace lotteries. The Lowell School in San Francisco is doing this too. You will see them try to make this permanent because they're going to argue that this was good for uh, equity long-term. Right. Well, see, it's an interesting devolution because we start uh, with the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964. We start with affirmative action as a term, meaning efforts to create the equality of opportunity so that everybody gets a chance to get to the starting line at the same level and to run, you know, basically get a jump, the same jump as everybody else. Nobody is left short of the starting line in a race to the, you know, in a race to the future. Uh, and this was to remedy very specific, a very specific Jim Crow act of, you know, uh, you know, to create the conditions under which uh, black people, descendants of slaves were treated unequally in the United States in the educational system and therefore deserved a remedy. The remedy was not supposed to be numeric. It was actually, it's explicitly anti-numeric in the law, but it was that efforts and measures were to be taken, aggressive efforts were to be taken to identify, target, and improve the, the conditions and circumstances of those students who could best benefit from, um, you know, and, and achieve equality of opportunity. So uh, very uh, soon after uh, all of these things were debated as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, and Hubert Humphrey, among others, who shepherded the act through, said that would there would never be quotas, we would never count by race, and all of that, because um, you know the results weren't coming fast enough. These institutions very simply started to count by race because they wanted to show that they were building a more racially you know representative class and then uh the supreme court basically ruled that a very complicated series of rulings that you could not say that uh because if you had two people a black person and a white person with exactly the same uh, credits or you know exa in exactly the same position that the black person should get pride of place or get, should 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 have the finger on the scale to remedy past discrimination because then you were discriminating against a person in the present against a person in the past. That was the Backey decision. And then, but then you had this question of, well, could race be a factor at all in any circumstance? And then vaguely race became a factor uh, in various circumstances and in the decision in 2003 in the Bollinger decision uh, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor said, if I remember this correctly, that this was the last time she was going to say it was okay for race to be a factor in admissions, but it should be, it should end in a couple of decades and it should never be a factor anymore after this. Right now, we're not there yet, but it can be a factor, but you can't count by now. We can't do this. You can't count blah, 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 blah. Well, so it turns out you can't, you're not, so. Uh, diversity then became the standard. This was actually what led to this notion that you could use race as a factor uh, because uh, diversity is an end in and of itself. Like affirmative action is an effort to remedy past discrimination. Diversity is 
it's really great to have everybody kind of in some kind of uh, numerical, semi-numerical balance with the overall population. People are, will, they'll know each other and they'll feel. Even though they're all from the same economic and educational background, like they're all, they all tend to be from the other class. It's good (laughs) for them and it's good for society. It's a It's, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. So diversity has no end or limit. It is a good in and of itself, but guess what? It doesn't produce what you want it to produce. Because then you turn around, if you're in New York City, and you look at uh, the the selective high schools that have a test. It's a single test. Nothing else counts. Grades don't count. Attendance doesn't count. Whatever happened at school before doesn't count. You're in eighth grade. You take this test. There are eight schools. It's mandated by the state. And depending on how you do, you can get into one of these eight selective high schools or not. And at these schools, as the Asian population swelled in New York over the last 30 years, you got some truly horrifying numbers of racial disparity in these schools. I mean, there's just no question, like Stuyvesant High School admits a class of 900 kids and there are nine black kids in the class. I mean, it's it's chilling, you know, there's something, it's, you know, but uh, we're not chilled in the right way because we're not chilled on the basis of holy, like, what is going on in this school system that, you know, every poor person in it has n- is not prepared to go on to a good high school. The school system is a disaster. Fix it from the root. Pull it out and fix it from the root. No, we don't do that. So you go from affirmative action to remedy specific specific discrimination to diversity, which means you can account, you, you have a beautiful, uh, gorgeous mosaic, to destroying all standards on in the basis on the on the basis of equity. In other words, there's nothing you're not there's something honest about it. That's the weird part about it, which is, you know what, we don't like how this is gone. We don't like that this doesn't work the way we want it to work. So the only thing we can do is destroy all standards. And then the standards that we set will be political, not not educational, not intellectual not you know cognitive they will be political and uh and and it's a it's a really uh chilling totalitarian development because then you really do get to the idea that some you know uh, some animals are more equal than others i mean that well, that's it where also, it has practical implications too. think about medical uh, research or or medicine or science or what i mean if you look at this from a global perspective if you want to think ahead in the next 50 to 100 years at, at whether or not that our country will remain a leader in a lot of the innovation development uh, technology stuff that we want to continue to do, uh, you know, they don't have equity mandates in China, with the exception of putting in concentration camps, the people they don't like. I mean, the, the idea that this is going to allow us to continue to be competitive by just pretending we shouldn't have standards because it makes everybody feel good is pernicious uh, as a sort of ethical matter, but it's also as a practical matter, really bad for this country. It's going to stifle some of the development and innovation. It's certainly going to stifle the pursuit of excellence that has always been something that brought people from different. It's why our, our underclass tends to be pretty mobile compared to the underclass in a lot of other countries. Like people how, rise. Right. How did the quota system at the Ivy League schools that dominated higher education in the first half of the 20th century where you know there was a set 16 to 70% quota on Jews at at most Ivy League schools how did it fall apart anxiety about america's position in the world sputnik destroyed the quota system against jews it was this notion that oh my god we're holding back we need every smart kid to go to college and to go to the best colleges and to do whatever they can do because the Russians are outdistancing us in space and we are going to be destroyed, right? Now, we're, in, we're not in an existential fight with China, really, but we are in a global 21st century fight to see which economy is going to be no, done. We weren't in an existential fight with Japan, but the same sentiment prevailed in the early 1980s. What do you mean? That they were outpacing us in STEM, they were buying up all our property, yeah. buying up our car companies. Yeah, there's this I real know. sort of moral panic around 
no. Japanese economic expansion. And that presented the same challenges. And, and it was resolved by market mechanisms. And that's right. the same thing. And we can't actually divorce this conversation from the conversation we had around the pandemic, because you're also seeing now um, are you know, bubbling up from the blogs and into the mouths of educators, the notion that the race to reopen schools is a function of white supremacy, um, because it's just the catch-all that gets you to shut up at this point. Um, and in the event that, and also because the pandemic has made life in American urban centers all but intolerable, that it has precipitated a flight, a flight of people out from the Northeast, out from California, into the suburbs, into more accommodating states. And there's a marketplace that is fueled by the instinctual evolutionary desire to provide your children with a better life than the one that you led. And that's not going to go away. And there will always be a market for that. And if they eliminate achievement in the cities, on top of making cities less desirable to live in generally, there's going to it's going to precipitate a an absolute refugee crisis into, I, I the, into the hinterland. No, the danger, the, the problem with your theory is that uh, this is a this is a, a universalist mindset, and and it will the idea that uh, the world of public education will be infected by these ideas in all fifty states. It's not. It's not. You know, may start with selective schools in in uh, Fairfax County and uh, and New York City and San Francisco and stuff like that. But, I mean, uh, oh, I'll just say one thing. There was a fantastic little piece of footage I saw a couple of days ago. I can't remember who did it, but uh, somebody went out on the streets of Nashville uh, and said to people, oh, my God, it's amazing. All these people are moving from the Northeast and California and something here because you know they can see that uh, there's a better life here uh what do you say that what do you welcome them do you want them and this guy said just don't bring the politics here that made you flee where you were before and that of course is the ultimate question that happens where, right yeah. that the atlanta suburb that has happened in a lot of red states actually yeah. so it's, it's a real just risk don't you know if you don't come here and make us them like come here and be us don't be them because you you decided you couldn't live there anymore for very good reason that's the interesting i think in in that regard we have an interesting social uh dilemma here and uh people who are making these decisions for the basis of for the purpose of uh strengthening their families and their children's futures and all of that are people who are very interested like that uh, guy on the street in Nashville in the interplay of politics and finance and personal investing and how to get ahead and what to do with your money and how to live in a world in a changing political circumstances where uh, the people at the top have uh, uncommon uh, uh, the uncommon ability to uh, adjust your expectations and your uh, and the, your ability to uh, husband your capital and grow it. And if you need to understand that, you need to look to our friends at the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal financial management firm with $2.6 billion under management. Uh, and uh, these are hardworking, serious, intellectually sophisticated people who uh, who show in, in every piece of their work product a kind of determination to understand and bring that understanding to your portfolio um, that uh, that that puts the rest of the financial services industry to shame. If you want a, some sample of their work, go to their two internet publications, the daily, the dctoday.com and the weekly dividendcafe.com, where you will where you will be a beneficiary for free of the work that they uh, of some of the work that they provide to the people who have entrusted their money to them. Please take a look. The dctoday.com, dividendcafe.com, produced by the Bonson Group, the great antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial management world. And we thank them, as always, for sponsoring our podcast. Okay, can guys, ask, so... Uh, can I ask one quick question yeah, about the Equity yeah. Genie? which is that once it's out of the bottle, unlike affirmative action, which did kind of um, 
focus very specifically mainly on education and on workplace advancement. The equity genie is meant to infect all areas of our uh, being. And I wonder how that works when uh, we're, you know, 10, 20 years, we're a majority minority country and there's a lot of uh, uh, multi-ethnic people, multi-racial people, all a good thing in my view, but how do we how are we going to be parsing our society and its benefits um, when that is the case? Because we do see this, as Noah said, it's not just that they're calling Asian kids uh, white, but among a- the, the category Asian even includes a vast range of people of different ethnicities and backgrounds. So I fear that, you know, uh, we, we joke about what will the NBA look like if equity is really advanced? I mean, it'll be a lot more white, actually. <laughs> so so this idea that we have to kind of I mean, it will like, right. The principle, the principle doesn't allow for exceptions if it's pursued the way that you know, the folks who really believe in it want it pursued. So I'm just, I'll be interested to see how it, the rationalizations and justifications made for that. The greatest satirical portrait of the world of enforced equity is 2,500 years old, almost 2,500 years old. It's Aristophanes's play, The Assembly of Women the Ecclesia Zusai. And in this play, which is about, uh, you know, which is about gender equity, it's literally about women uh, being allowed to play a political role in the city. Um, and it, it, it concludes with uh, new laws written that force young men into forced sexual relationships with old, ugly women. Now I am only bringing this up not because it's it, is it is it a misogynistic play yet yeah, it's one of the great comic masterpieces uh, of 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 all world history once again a proof that we do not advance culturally because there has been no greater writer than Aristophanes and we're you know 25 years under and on from him uh years on from him and he he has much to teach us about how we how we live today uh particularly uh you know, the point is that these ideas have been with us forever. Uh, and this is kind of the comic version of Plato's Republic in some aspects, where, you know, what you're now going to do is enforce laws from the top down for the good of everybody. And what they then do is, what is it that old women can't get? They can't get good sex. So, so it's not fair for young men to pair off with nubile, beautiful young women and to therefore have uh, the sexual carnal sexual pleasure as they would want it. They must be forced to sleep with old bags. That's- so Aristophanes invented the cougar? I mean, I'm kind of there liking you go. <laughs> There you go. But they're not even cougars. That's the point. They're not Magic. cougars. They're like... They're like women in nursing homes, you know. They're like we'll call them crones. We'll say yeah. crones. Crones, fine. Crones Lies as opposed crones. to cougars. Okay. Anyway, it's it's a great satirical work, but it, what, the reason I bring it up is, you know, that it, the ultimate inequity is why do you get that you you shouldn't? Because if if ever every every if everybody can have it, nobody can have it. That is totalitarianism at its at its ultimate and uh, socialist totalitarianism at its ultimate and that is why critical race theory and equity theory are inimical to every part of the western political experiment and um i commend to you though it will break your heart and make you physically ill uh, an article in the New York Times magazine uh which is on the site today about a classicist at uh, Princeton, um, a uh, uh, from the Dominican Republic, uh, who is uh, actively attempting to destroy his own field, um, and it's kind of an amazing story. He was a kid. He came from the Dominican Republic with his family. He was living in a shelter in Brooklyn, and he started reading uh, classical literature and uh, was taken under the wing of someone, gotten into a, I believe, Stuyvesant, one of the great selective high schools goes off to Princeton, gets a PhD, teaches at Stanford, comes back to Princeton. He's 45 years old. He's a hot shot in his field. And somewhere along the way, he decided that all of Western civilization is monstrous. It's all built on slavery. It's all about uh, the promulgation of white supremacy. And classicism itself, the field of studying the ancient world, needs to be destroyed. And all of its teachers and everybody like that put into other fields so that Everything can focus on race 
and white supremacy and the evil of Western civilization. Um, it is an incredibly horrifying but very pregnant story about the intellectual corruption and the and the kind of almost satanic temptation presented by these ideas. A person who himself is the proof, the proof that uh, study of Aristophanes and whoever else, you know, and ancient history uh, is a path out of despair, poverty, and helplessness if you have the if you have the intellectual means and the spiritual wherewithal to do the work and get through and then teach others instead is going to devote his life to the destruction of the very thing that saved him that saved him whereas this stuff that he is now believing is going to destroy him it's going to destroy his children it is going to destroy our children and it is going to destroy western civilization i mean i don't know how else to look at it uh we we should i i wasn't even going to go there because i because i i was so i read it yesterday and i plunged into a into a despair so deep that even michelle goldberg's uh desperate desire to get a vaccine so she could have a a dinner party uh uh mine outranked hers um uh and let me just uh point out also as i've been telling you for weeks that uh, as we're talking about this and these kind of destructive impacts, some of the ways that these critical race theorists and people are sort of keeping tabs on you and trying to control the way you think is over social media through big tech, trying to curb our rights and freedoms by attempting to deplatform speech they don't agree with. Now, you could just deactivate all your social media accounts, but you'd just be giving them what they wanted in the first place. So instead of letting big tech sites try to control your speech, Why not revoke their right to your data? That's why I choose to protect my online data by using ExpressVPN. Ever wondered how free to access social media companies make all their money? Well, by tracking your searches, video history, and everything you click on, and then by selling your valuable data. So when you use ExpressVPN, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from eavesdroppers on your network. And it couldn't be easier to set up. You just tap one button on your phone or computer and you're protected. So say no to censorship. Take back your online privacy with the VPN I trust at expressvpn.com slash commentary. By visiting my link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Expressvpn.com slash commentary to protect your data today. No, I'm going to ask you to uh, do some rank uh, predicting. Will Biden negotiate with the 10? We talked about this yesterday. Got to talk about it again. Will he negotiate with the 10 Republicans or will he stiff them and go for reconciliation? Um, I don't know if the two things are mutually exclusive. Uh, you can actually break the bill up if you needed to. Uh, we already saw some some indication that the White House is is not totally uh, opposed to the notion that they could means test some of these checks to bring down the totals. Now that he's sticking with the 1400, got to be 1400. I don't know why they arrived at that arbitrary number just to get it to 2000, I guess, but that's what they're, they're sticking with. But then, yeah, maybe you can bring the total down with some means testing. So I'm a compromise package seems more likely than not to me, but then there are other elements that Democrats want and maybe you break up. Maybe it doesn't have to be this, you know, singular package that constitutes COVID relief. Uh, there's, there's, you know, options here, but I have absolutely no idea how this is going to unfold. All I know is that Joe Biden does seem, in, the Biden administration does seem inclined towards compromise in some shape, way, or form. And um, to the consternation of their base, they are interested in in some olive branches to Republican members of the Senate. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't expect that that, that that's going to fall apart because um, there's some interest on, on the Republican part in getting something, so, uh, you know, passed too. So that's going to prevail most likely. I have no idea how, okay. how it works out. That. But is, is that the Biden? We have the first signs of a great old internal Biden administration war just two weeks into the Biden administration. Stories in Politico and elsewhere about how 
Biden wants to play. Biden wants to compromise, but it's that White House chief of staff of his, Ron Klain, who is some kind of a commie plant trying to just give all the goodies to the to the left. And that's not me talking. That's some internal Biden administration person who is right. firing on all cylinders at Ron Klain in the pages of Politico or the well, website of Politico. And, it, and it's even, it's not the, the, the charge against Klain in, in this political, uh, Politico uh, piece wasn't that he was, you know, a crazy socialist. On the contrary, it's something far more petty and inside the beltway. It's that he's still angry that when Obama was president, the Republicans weren't, you know, wheeling and dealing enough with Obama. And so now they have to be punished. Now that they are out of power, you stick it to them because that shows them, you know, finally Ha, ha, I have my revenge. So there's a weird, it, it's so, it's, it's very inside baseball. There's another, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the four-dimensional chess argument would be that you draw attention away towards Klain, away from Biden. You protect Biden and keep his little unity, you know, reaching across the aisle message pure, and you let the staffers take the flack, even though actually they're all on the same page with, you know, getting the most out of it. If they deal at all, it's going to be on their terms. So, I mean, there could be one of two things going on. I actually believe the petty explanation that they want to stick it to people because they are still mad about the Obama, Obama years. That's much more DC, right. uh, <laughs> DC well, approach. To, well, according to Joe Manchin on Morning Joe this morning, Biden said to him, look, I'm going to negotiate with them, but we're not going to go through what we went through in 2009, where Obama tried to negotiate with the Republicans, and he just delayed them for months and months and months and months and months, which is horse hockey. It's also how the system is supposed to work. But it's also branches. horse hockey. <laughs> That's not what happened. Right. They were putting together... They wanted some kind of a face-saving bipartisan face on some of this legislation in 2009, but they didn't need it. They had 60 votes in the Senate and the House at their command, and uh, by the time they finally got an Obamacare bill in a position where it could get passed, two things happened. One was that they had some trouble in the Democratic caucus— particularly with Joe Lieberman, who did not want a public option in Obamacare, and then, of course, the death of Teddy Kennedy, which then left Joe Lieberman as they, you know, they, when Scott Brown won, they they had to, they ended up having to play all sorts of games, but not have a public option. And I think they confused negotiating with Joe Lieberman, a Democrat, with negotiating with Republicans who had 40 or 41 seats in the Senate and had very little power. So they've made up in their own heads this alternate history of the first year, year and a half of the Obama administration when, in fact, Obama got – now these numbers doesn't, don't sound so big, but at the time they did – spent $2.5 trillion in 18 months, in 17 months, excuse me, between the stimulus – oh, the other thing is – the stim- we're not going to make the same mistake we made in 2009. The stimulus was too small. The stimulus was too small. It was a trillion-dollar bill. There had never been a bill larger than $600 million in the history of the United States. It was a trillion-dollar bill, and they were stupid the way they structured it because they the way they structured it, it ended up a lot of it going down to pay down state debt. Like if they had known what the hell they were doing, they could have arranged it differently, but they didn't. So – that's also not the fault of the Republicans. That's their own dumbass bill construction. But uh, this notion that they need to stick it to Republicans who didn't do any, who, who were unable to do anything to stop their agenda except win the midterms in 2010 is just mind blowing. It's just not what happened. It's not the truth. I mean, I know now we're going to say, oh, well, Trump didn't tell the truth either. But I mean, like, they seem to believe it. Well, it's it's a narrative that suits the present day political needs that they have, right? I mean, they for a villain, you know, McConnell and the Republicans once again need to fill a role that that Trump has vacated um, with the special guest star appearances by Marjorie Taylor Greene and QAnon. I mean, they, you know, there, yeah. there's 
the narrative actually, and the narrative is, I, I've heard it many times from friends of mine who worked on the Hill during this period of time and should know better. Like the narrative is incredibly comforting in the same way that the right has plenty of its own narratives uh, that, that have the same effect. But this one in particular is something that the mainstream media repeats uncritically, constantly, in every piece of policy reporting it does about negotiations between the White House and the Hill. Look, it's very simple. If 2010 had been a good year and not a not a bad year, economically and politically, then the Democrats would have romped and been in fa- in a fan- because it was they owned everything. And granted, Obama didn't necessarily want to have to own everything, or he wanted some plausible deniability because maybe it wasn't going to go so great. But remember, recovery summer, it was going to be recovery summer. It was going to be 2010 was going to be recovery summer. And then the recovery didn't really happen the way that they promised. Had things gone differently, had what they tried to do been more successful, they would have reaped benefits for decades to come. But it wasn't. And to blame Republicans for their own political failings when they were able to move legislation pretty much at will is just, that is just, you know, I don't know, it's chutzpah beyond belief. They made a bet, they made a practical bet that they could Keynesian their way out of everything and it didn't work. That's just the fact of it. So let them try the bet again and see what happens. Apparently they're going to one way or another. Anyway, with that, we've uh, we've, we've kept you for too long. Uh, Abe will be back tomorrow for Noah and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.